Our scripture passage is Psalm chapter 45, verses 1 through 17. Your throne, O God, is forever. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons, you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Good morning. This is the remnant after Christmas always. So you are the ones, the few, the proud who come on Christmas, or the really the second Sunday, uh, the second day of Christmas, rather. So we're glad you're here. I know we're probably all feeling a little bit of too much sweets and too much food, and and you're a little exhausted from maybe entertaining, but I am really glad you're here. And for those of you watching in pajamas on TV right now, we're glad you're watching, although we are the ones here. No, uh, we are thankful for the technology, and we certainly understand the challenges of the Christmas season. So, again, glad you're here, glad if you're watching online, and I hope you had a Merry Christmas. We did have um, uh, some music planned last week that I hijacked, and I wanted to apologize. Unfortunately, Robin's sick today and is unable to play for us, so... Just hold your breath because it's going to be a wonderful song when we get to it. So last week in my state of influenza or whatever, I jumped up when I wasn't supposed to and no one said anything to me. 
until I, I got about five minutes from home and I was wondering why was that service so short? I can't figure it out. And then I remembered I had jumped up when I wasn't supposed to get up. It would have been appropriate to interrupt me, but that's, that's okay. So that was, that was then, but again, um, I'm excited that you're here and we're excited about that special music when it comes. Well, our sermon text is from Psalm 45 this morning, and before we jump into it, I'd like to pray for us and ask God to illuminate the text for us. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. And we are grateful for this psalm that tells us about a king who is setting all things right. A king who is unlike any ruler this world has ever known. We are grateful for that. And I pray that you would help us to see our identity as those who have been bound to the king. Those who have, to use the metaphor of scripture, been married to the king. Who have been covenanted to the king. And for those of us who are in Christ, we know that we are the bride of Christ Jesus, our King. And I pray that you would open our eyes to that this morning, that we would see it in all of its beauty and splendor, and that we would see the King in all of his beauty and splendor, and that we, like those in the book of Revelation, would fall down before him, worshiping him and praising him forever and ever. In his name we pray, amen. Well... Psalm 45 is interesting, and I hope to explain it to you as we go along. I do have to make one more comment. I feel like I'm making tremendous amounts of comments, but this morning's been odd for me as well. I sat in the library and talked to Lindsay and Becky uh, for a little bit, and I drank another cup of coffee, so I really feel quite jittery at this moment. So last week it was sick. Now it's too much caffeine. Uh, I'll just remind you, Billy Graham preached somewhere around 200 words a minute when he spoke. I'm generally around 160, so if we get into those gusts of 200, I apologize. Just try to keep up. Maybe slow me down on YouTube if you go back and watch it. I want to share a quote with you from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes, It is always winter but never Christmas. And this is how the story begins. It's always winter, but never Christmas. And those, are, those words capture this feeling of times of uncertainty, times of bleakness. They capture the feeling of living in a world that is broken and painful. They capture the feeling of being enslaved, of having perpetual winter, and yet nothing to celebrate, like Christmas. They capture the feeling of being burdened by painful emotions. They capture the feeling of living a meaningless life with no pinnacle or no climax of celebration. But the good news of Jesus, this gospel that we talk about Sunday after Sunday, the gospel that we are tasked with proclaiming, is that winter is coming to an end, that there is a festival in the middle of winter. And that reason for the winter coming to an end is because the king is returning. And even more than that, we find in scripture that the king desires a relationship with people like you and me. So not only is winter coming to an end, not only is Christmas the season when we celebrate the real king, but we also celebrate our relationship to the king as people who are brought into union with him. 
So what I want to do in this psalm, and I love doing this with scripture, by the way. I love looking at the psalms and reading it as Christians read this. And this is how the New Testament pattern is for us. This isn't, isn't me just taking a psalm and saying, okay, where can I find Christ? The consistent New Testament pattern is to look at the psalms and say, here we find Jesus. And look, this was about Jesus all along. Look, Jesus is the key that unlocks these mysterious scriptures of the Old Testament. And I would only point you to a book like Hebrews or even the book of Galatians in the New Testament to see a pattern of how Christians read these Old Testament texts. So I love doing this. I think it's wonderful to look for Christ Jesus in the Psalms. And that's exactly what I want to show you in Psalm 45 this morning. So I want to talk about the king. And I want you to see how he's described here in Psalm 45. We've heard the whole thing read, so we'll just sort of go through it and I'll point you to those places. Look how he's described in verse 2, for example. He's described as superior to every other human being. We're told that he's the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon his lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So he's superior. And then as we go into verse 3, he's described with words like mighty and splendor and majesty. So we see that he is more than a man. He's got this might and splendor and majesty. And again, these words typically refer exclusively to God in the scriptures. Typically, when we use the words of might and splendor and majesty, we're talking about the living God. We're not talking about people like you and me. And so right here, we're tipped off that this is a person, a king, who is superior to anything the world has ever known. We're also told he takes up his sword in might and in justice. And then in verse 4, he rides out in his majesty. And he doesn't just ride out, but he rides out victoriously. And he rides out to win. Notice what he fights for according to verse 4. For the cause of truth and for the cause of meekness and for the cause of righteousness. This is why he rides out for good things, to bring good things to our world. For justice and righteousness. Now, what do our leaders fight for? If you just stop and consider the history of the world, think about what leaders have fought for historically. They fought for more power. They fought for more land. They fought for more wealth. They fought for more influence. But this king that we're reading about here in Psalm 45 is riding out not for more power, not for more, uh, not for, for more influence, but for righteousness, for meekness, for humility, for justice, for the things that are truly beautiful and enduring, for good things, for truth. Then there's verse 5 where we're told he will destroy his enemies. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. So those who would try to stand up to this king find that they cannot stand before him. Instead, they're forced to fall. They are destroyed by him. So what we have in just these opening verses is this picture of a warrior king 
who is superior to all others. He is a warrior king who is victorious in every single battle. And his cause in his battle is for justice and righteousness and goodness and truth and beauty and all of these things that we so desperately long for. In fact, we think about these things around Christmas time. Around Christmas time, we're, we're, we're sort of taken aback by the, the magic of it all, right? The, the splendor of Christmas. And we love those moments and our, our hearts are stirred in a unique way. I think that's even why we sing these wonderful Christmas carols, because they stir us in a unique way. That is the sort of thing that we feel as a shadow for what this king is bringing to the world. Right? See, these are tipping us off on what we really need. And here in the psalm, we learn that the king is victorious in bringing those things to the world. And this is precisely the picture we have of Christ in the New Testament. Rupert read it for us, but again, I turn your attention to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you... That's all of us, by the way. It's not a you. It's a you, including me. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So our state was dead. God makes us alive. And how does he do that? Forgiving us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How? Nailing it to the cross. But there's more here. There is this cosmic battle at play. Notice the end. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who are those? These are these powers in unseen places. The forces that work behind the, the, the structures of our world. Routinely throughout scripture, when we read about rulers and authorities, we're talking about spiritual authorities. We're talking about rulers and authorities in the unseen realms. And so we hear here that they have been disarmed by the cross. And they have been put to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or some translations have by it. So there's a little bit of a question. Are we talking about in Christ in him. Or by it as a reference to the cross. So either way really says the same thing. That in the death of Jesus. The rulers and authorities in the unseen realms. Have been disarmed. They have been triumphed over. And this language is really incredible because that word triumph pictures a military parade and is common in the ancient world where the general returns to the city and in front of him are his captives of war. And Paul tells us here that that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. That he disarmed the powers and authorities. Those things that enslave humans. Those things that keep us bound. Those things that have corrupted God's good creation. He has disarmed them and he has paraded through the streets in his death and his resurrection. He has shown to every single power and authority and every single human being that he is the victorious king. So here's what that means for you and me. If you feel overwhelmed by your circumstances, or if you feel trapped by your bad habits, by your continued mistakes, by the fact that you still get angry in moments when you feel like you shouldn't get angry, right? If you feel bound by what you're doing, take heart because the king has won the battle. 
The reason that you and I can be free from sin, the reason you and I can progress in holiness, is not because we're good people who have it figured out. It's because Christ disarmed the powers on his cross. The powers of hell have been put to open shame. They no longer wield the authority and power over us. The chains have been broken. That's exactly what we're learning about here. He has broken the power that enslaves you. So if you are his, you can be free because you have been delivered by the cross. Now look at the description of this king in verses 6 through 9 back in Psalm 45. In verse 6, he's addressed as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So this is huge. Don't miss this. In ancient Israel, there is one God. Okay, and you don't, you don't speak about others as God. Right? One of the most famous passages, the passage that Israelites are instructed to wear on their arms and to wear on their heads and to put on their doorpost, whether literally or metaphorically sort of debated, I suppose. But the passage is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is one God. So any sort of talk about another God is a huge problem. Think about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And yet here in the psalm, we have a direct reference to a king who is forever and ever. Right, His throne will extend forever and ever. But he is called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And ever. And here we have all sorts of connections across the story of Scripture, the most explicit of which comes from 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to David that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever. Here we have a connection to a king who will sit on the throne forever and ever. And as I've reminded you before when I've talked about that passage, kings. Do not sit on thrones forever and ever because they die. But this king is addressed as God and he is able to sit on the throne forever and ever. The point here is that this king is more than a man. And even more astonishing is the fact that in verse 7 we read, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now notice this. There's this king who is called God, and he has been anointed by God. Just think about it for a second. There's a king who's called God, but he's been anointed by God. So what we have is a conversation that we're hearing between this king who is divine and who is identified as God and God who is anointing him. So there's this conversation between a divine king and God. And by the way, this word anointed is the verb form for Messiah. So we have the Messiah, the king, and God. Now, think about this for a second. This happens all over the Old Testament, and the author of Hebrews really picks up on this. Is there a theological category that helps us make sense out of a passage like this where we have a king identified as God, and yet God is speaking to this king? Absolutely. In Christian doctrine, the fundamental understanding of who God is is the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And it's not some dusty doctrine that doesn't have anything to do with our lives and doesn't really matter to us. It is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's not something that we just brush aside and just, you know, kind of for academics and theologians to think about. Instead, it's really important for understanding a passage like this. It's the foundation for our faith because if we get the Trinity wrong, we're going to get who this king is wrong. And more importantly, we're going to misunderstand who Jesus is. We're going to think he's some great teacher. We're going to think he's some great wise prophet. And instead, we're going to, or we're going to miss the point that he's the king, the eternal king who sits on the throne forever and ever. And we don't want to think of Jesus as some sort of lesser God or a man. And if we do so, we'll miss the breathtaking magnitude of the gospel, that God became flesh, that God died and rose again. And we can see the tension that the early Christians were wrestling with. See, they knew the scripture. There is only one God and scripture does not compromise on that point. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Yet, we see here a conversation. And yet, we see throughout the rest of scripture, the Father and the Son and the Spirit interacting as distinct persons. We see it in the psalm. They're conversing as your God has anointed you. God, your God has anointed you. And yet, he's already been identified as God. So, we need the doctrine of the Trinity to make sense out of our faith. And that's why the ancient confessions are all Trinitarian. Remember when we went through the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You see that Trinitarian pattern. And the point is this, verses 6 through 9 make it abundantly and absolutely and undeniably clear that the king in this passage is no mere man. The king is God himself, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness. He's a good, good king, holy and righteous, and he's a warrior who has and will deal with evil. He will deal with sin, Satan, and death and eradicate any hint of unholiness or unrighteousness in this creation. And that is the good news, the joy of Christmas, that Christ is redeeming this world because he is the king who will sit on the throne forever and ever. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this interaction with one of the children where she first learns about Aslan. And if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, you're never too old to read it. Go back and read it. Um, They're children's books, so it really shouldn't take you that long. Um, But a phenomenal story where I think you'll find in reading it, you'll have moments of genuine worship for the true and living God. Because Lewis paints that picture so well. But in that story, Aslan is the king everyone is waiting on. And there's these rumors that he's back, that he's come, that he's coming to set the world right, that he's coming to do away with winter, that Christmas will once again come. And in this interaction, when this little girl is told that Aslan is coming, and more importantly, Aslan is a lion, her response is predictable. She says, a lion? Lions aren't safe. And she asks the question, is he safe? And the response is this, and I love this response, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, that's exactly this picture of Psalm 45. And often in scripture, we get this language that sounds so harsh. He's going to defeat his enemies. They won't be able to stand before him. He'll pierce them with his arrows. And we wonder, what in the world is this about? It's because he's not safe. He's a lion, a consuming fire. He's not safe at all, but he's good. 
The God of the world, the God of justice and righteousness will do exactly what is right. And that's exactly what we need in a world full of evil and injustice. That's a king worth celebrating, which is the very picture we have in verses 8 and 9. We have this picture of his robes that are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Your robes are fragrant with these things from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. See the picture of this king in all of his glory. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. So he's surrounded by the best royal court. Which by the way probably has some sort of shadow of what the church will be. If we really want to press into the metaphors of the psalm. But at your right hand we read at the end of verse 9. Stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So this picture of this splendid court. And so far that's all very good news. But it gets even better. Because this king, this divine warrior, wants a relationship with you and me. It's not just about this beautiful king, which is enough, right? That's enough to let us go out of here and say there is good news in this world. But there's more. This king wants to know you and me. In verses 10 through 15, the psalmist writes to the bride of the king, to his queen. In verses 10 through 11, he challenges her to leave her people and cling to the king. Just listen to them. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. So there's this calling for her to come and be part of his kingdom. To leave the former life behind. To come to him. In his splendid courts. In verses 12 through 15. We meet all of these images. Of her beauty. And of her purity. So I'll just read those. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people. See the most powerful and richest. Will seek her favor. And then in verse 13. We read about her glorious clothing. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. With robes interwoven with gold. And then she's led to the king in this splendid wardrobe in verse 14. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. So she has this procession, this parade symbolizing her purity. That's what those companions are there for. And verse 15 tells us that this is a time of rejoicing and peace as they enter into the palace. With joy and gladness they enter in. The New Testament describes this relationship of Jesus and the church, the people of God, his saints in terms of marriage. See, marriage is this covenant commitment to each other. So it's a fitting picture for us as we think about our relationship with King Jesus. Let me take you to Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Look what Jesus has done for the church. Not the building, okay? The church is you and me. We are the temple of the living God if we are in Christ. Look what he has done for you. 
He has washed you. He has purified you. He intends to present you as holy when all is said and done. He did it to sanctify us. That word sanctify simply means to make us holy. Verse 27 in Ephesians 5 says, The result is that we are presented to him, the king, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. So stop and process this for a minute because it's big. All right, I know this can be a little bit abstract as we, we think about these things. And we're thinking, well, Psalm 45, and, and I'm talking about this king and these metaphors. But stop and process what this means. Think about your life. Consider your past. Consider where you are today. Some of you may have some dark secrets, right? Some of us carry dark, dark secrets, things we wouldn't ever share with anybody else. Things we're embarrassed of. Things that are just too heavy to share. Some of us are carrying heavy baggage, things that have been done to us, something we've done, something that we consider unforgivable perhaps. Some of us have had something done to us that makes us feel unlovable or useless. We feel like an object. Some of us are in situations even now that we're afraid to talk about because we know we'll be judged. And as a result, we feel guilt and we feel shame. Some of us just feel broken. We, we cry even when we don't know why. Right? It just sets off. We're close to despair. We're, aren't sure, we're not sure there's any good left in this world. Even this weekend, a number of our church members are mourning. They're mourning the loss of siblings and family members. We have two in our church family who are mourning the loss of siblings even this weekend. And so there's a lot of heaviness in a room like this. But here is what we must hear. If that's you, and I think it's probably all of us in some form or fashion, the hope of the gospel is that the king has set his sights on you. He has set his sights on you to clothe you and to wash you himself. There's nothing you or I must do to present ourselves to the king. See, on the cross, Jesus takes all of that baggage and he destroys it. All of that shame and guilt are born by him and he crucifies it and buries it forever. He leaves it in the grave. So all the accusations you feel are, are buried and left in the grave. And regardless of the guilt and shame you feel, the king is summoning you to his court, not as a dirty beggar, but as someone clothed in Pure clothing and splendid clothing in righteousness and holiness. Because he has washed you. He has cleansed you. And you are holy, not because you've done the right things, but because he has given you his holiness. The king's holiness. That's why I always say the church's holiness is not ours. It is derived from the king. It comes from the king. That's why we pray prayers of confession, by the way, not to get the king's attention, but to remind ourselves that the only hope we have at being holy as a church, as a person, as a pastor, is by getting that holiness from the king, from King Jesus, who is perfectly holy. Now, there are some of us here, and I have to talk about this because it's a problem anywhere uh, we've seen the church sort of blossom in decades past. There are some of us here who think that we're responsible for presenting ourselves to the king in splendor and holiness. And I have to push against that. We think that our church attendance or our respectable life makes us pure. 
We look at others who are broken and we say, well, they really need to get themselves together. They need to clean things up. They need to change and, and they need to put their life together. And the whole point of doing that is an excuse for us to pat ourselves on the back for being pure. If you're in that situation, that is dangerous and you must push it away. If you think your virtue and your clean living pleases God, you have to remember what Scripture says about the clothing you wear apart from the king clothing you. Isaiah 64 verse 6 is that famous passage. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So there's the metaphor. What we're clothed in is filthy rags. And this filthy rags, as many of you probably know, is a rather tame translation. The real thrust of the Hebrew behind this passage is a bit too involved to talk about in a mixed group. It's not really appropriate to talk about in a mixed group. But those of us who think we're righteous in and of ourselves, we have to hear this. Our efforts at righteousness will not present us to the king clean and clothed in splendor. We may think that we're, we've been clothed in righteousness by our good works, but when you stand before the king, you'll find that you're clothed in nothing but filthy rags. So here's the hope for us. That we would come to the king repentant, repenting of the lie that we please God with our life. And instead we look to the one person, the king, who can wash us and cleanse us and present us blameless and without spot. Because that's what he's capable of doing. The purity is derived from him. Let me tell you a story to close this morning. It's a true story. And I'll tell you where I got it in a minute. But Roger married a, a woman named Jenny. And obviously the names are different here. Jenny had a checkered past and all of Roger's friends said, don't do it. You're getting into a mess if you marry this person. And they thought he was crazy, but he married her anyway. And they had a couple of kids and things went okay for a while. But then Roger noticed that Jenny wasn't coming home on time and he didn't know where she was always. And she would stay gone all day sometimes and then sometimes late into the evening and never would have a good answer for him when he said, what, what have you been doing? And then he looked at the credit card statement and his heart dropped because he saw charges for clothes and food and, and hotel rooms. And he wondered what in the world is going on here. Tons of spending. So one night he decided to follow her. And when she left, he trailed at a distance and he followed her where she parked at a nice restaurant. And as he got up to the window of the restaurant, he looked in and he sees his wife, Jenny, sitting at a table with another man. You can imagine how he felt in that moment. But do you know what he did? He turned around, got in his car, and went home. He paid the credit card bills, and he waited for Jenny. And when Jenny came through the door close to midnight, he grabbed her and he hugged her. And he said, Jenny, what are you doing? I love you. I, I've paid the credit card bills. I know what you're up to, but I want you to know that I love you. Then each day, Roger went out of his way to show Jenny love. He, he brought her breakfast in bed. He would sing to her at night. He reminded her how loved she was in spite of what she had been up to. Do you know that that's exactly what God does for us? See, I didn't make that story up at all. In fact, you can read about it in your Bible. It's the story found in the book of Hosea, where we're shown God's incredible, passionate, pursuing love in spite of a bride who would be unfaithful. See, the most important thing about our identity is what God says about us. If we are in Christ, then the Lord looks at us despite of our brokenness, and he says, I love you. 
This is certain not on the basis of our good works, but because God in his own free will set his affections on us and he chose us to wash us and cleanse us and make us righteous and present us to himself as a pure bride forever and ever and ever. So wherever you are this morning, remember what the king says about you. Remember what the king says about you. Let me pray for us. Lord, the gospel is breathtaking. That you who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, if we could just let those words sink into our hearts and minds this morning, it would change how we see ourselves, how we see each other, how we see the world, how we think about our lives. So my prayer is simple. I pray that you would impress and stamp those words on our hearts and minds. I pray that we wouldn't be able to shake them. I pray that the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christianity would come to bear on our lives this morning. That we would see that it stands out unlike anything else the world has to offer. That all of the self-help, that all of the striving, that all of the putting ourselves together is emptiness compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace that invites us to fall before the king and be loved by the king and be celebrated and enjoy the king Not because we've done anything to earn it, but because the king has set his affection on us. I pray that we would see that for ourselves as individuals. And Lord, I pray for Monument Heights, that as a congregation of gathered believers, that we would see who we are in Christ and what we are in Christ. And Lord, I pray that this would be something that ripples into the new year. I pray that these truths would impact us deeply. And Lord, I do pray for those who are grieving in our congregation, for these two families who have lost siblings. Lord, we pray for your mercy and for your grace, for your presence. We pray for the sure and certain hope of the resurrection, that they would cling to it in the days ahead. And we pray that you would give them your peace and your comfort, and that they would rest in what you say about them and the hope that they have in you. Lord, I pray that as we look at this world and we're troubled by it, that we would see that you are setting all things right. And one day, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will know and see the real king. And they will see your glorious bride adorned in your holiness. Lord, I pray that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen.